0: Ernie Dollar, he is the uh, resident historian at the City of Raleigh and City of Raleigh Museum. Ernie, thanks for joining us. I just want to talk about the importance and the significance of Juneteenth as a holiday. This is, I think, the third year that is now a national holiday, but it's been going, it's been celebrated throughout the country. For a long,
1: long time, and that divide is always there too. Where, uh, especially once it was transitioning from a state holiday to a federal holiday, you would have people going, well, "What's Juneteenth?" And then another pastor would be like, "Well, let me tell you."
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, what is Juneteenth? It's a it's an amazing um, it's amazing holiday that has not really been celebrated nationally until, like you said, until recently. And it, it truly commemorates the the moment in, in December I think of eighteen sixty five or June eighteen sixty five when uh, it, formerly enslaved people in Texas got the word that they were free. Um, you know the the war Civil War ends in April of eighteen sixty five, and it's not until months later that they receive news that that they are now free people. And so that sort of marks the the genesis of this Juneteenth holiday.
0: And and one of the interesting things that I've I've read about that it's like. It took forever. It took so long for those people to know the, that the Emancipation Proclamation had been um, issued, that Lincoln had issued that, that the that the enslaved people in the southern you know, the states had been freed. In an age where we have information at our fingertips, that's just mind-boggling.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the thing about, you know, the, the Emancipation Proclamation, which takes effect on January 1st, 1863, um, it is sort of a, a hollow promise because you still need to have the Union armies win the war to enforce that freedom, right. and so that's what takes so long to to complete the war, to bring to subjugate the South, to bring end of slavery with the Thirteenth Amendment. And to really to to announce this, and you know, even some places still didn't get the news. There are still African Americans who are still uh, did not, like you said, did not get the news, and are still operating under that slavery is still the law of the land.
1: And so, now, was that was that a communication and? In- technology issue, or was there some obstinance where there was pushback and people were not spreading the news once it had come down the line?
2: Oh, I'm sure that it was, you know, a little bit of a resistance upon uh, white slave owners that, you know, their entire labor force has now been wiped out. The entire underpinning of the southern agricultural system, way of life society is now ultimately turned on its head. So they're going to hold on to this for as long as they can. And, you know, even up uh, into Reconstruction, there's so much Resistance to to black freedom, and uh, the state governments, especially right after the war, North Carolina is guilty of this as well. Take great efforts to enact what they call black codes mm-hmm. that really almost put African Americans back into that state of servitude as far as restricting where they where they went, what they could do, and you know it really took radical Reconstruction, starting in eighteen sixty seven, to enforce these new. Laws that gave African Americans freedom, and that that came about through the Freedmen's Bureau. Is that correct? Well, that was a, it was a constitutional amendment. Oh, okay. So the Freedmen's Bureau were sort of a, a support group because I think the United States government realized that if we are indeed going to free these four million people, we have to, to do something to help them integrate to become citizens in in our society. So it is providing health care, food, finance. They had a Freedmen's Bank. And then the most important part in my opinion of the Freedmen's Bureau is to is to negotiate to sort of stand as an intermediary between their former white slave masters and the enslaved, the freed people themselves. Mm-hmm. How how do you somehow negotiate a deal from people who, who had once been tragically subjugated with the most awful ways of of another race of people, and how do you sort of integrate them and put them on evil, equal footing? So Freedmen's Bureau is sort of the umpires of the South at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so
0: there was some question.
2: There's freedom. Now what? Yeah. And, you know, I often think about trying to put myself into the shoes of of African-Americans because this is a 250-year-old institution. Mm. And to try to understand this abstract concept of freedom, and I'm sure a lot of them understood what freedom of movement, freedom of life, but what all did that entail, right? And so when emancipation comes... That's the only thing they're given. There's so little support, so little ways of, of helping them to to rebuild their lives, reconnect families, yeah. and just to make them a part of American society. So I think that's one of the tragic failings of that post-Civil War world is not giving this 40 acres and a mule, as we always talk about.
0: And in 40 acres and a mule comes, um, I think it was Benjamin Butler and uh, the General general Benjamin Butler, his general uh, order promising you know, newly freed people. 40 acres and a mule that they can go and farm to, yeah. to use.
2: The only, the, the brightest hope that we see of this is with our dear friend General William Tecumseh Sherman who actually captures Raleigh in the final months of the war. Uh, outside of Savannah he again starts to distribute land, confiscated land from, from disloyal confederates and give them to their formerly enslaved property. So we do see this land distribution take place. But ultimately after the war all of that is revoked. This, okay. that the land is taken back.
0: So how does this work? How does Reconstruction and how is this seen in Raleigh? How does this all take take place in Raleigh?
1: I guess maybe to back up a little bit, how much of, you know, definitely the South's economy was dependent on slavery? Correct. How much of
2: Raleigh's economy was dependent on it? Good question. Um, so basically on the eve of the Civil War, Wake County is about... A third enslaved. That's kind of a 33% of the population are, are, are supposedly owned by other folks. Raleigh is not the most agricultural county. Certainly when you start moving what, Eastern North Carolina's big plantation counties, Wayne, Johnston, and, and those. When you start moving west of Wake County, you start to see a t- cultural shift into smaller uh, yeoman farmer plantations. You move west smaller and smaller African-American populations. So when emancipation comes, Raleigh is, is, is not as—the culture is not turned upside down as much as you've seen in places that truly depended on on slavery. Raleigh becomes almost like the shining lighthouse for freed people because, again, in April of 65— I have have Union and Confederate soldiers shooting it up on Fayetteville Street, but by December, Shaw University has its genesis. Right. So that's quickly followed two years later by St. Augustine's University. Why Raleigh becomes a, a shiny beacon is that education is the one thing that's been so denied to these people. Mm-hmm. And now a chance to to come into this urban atmosphere, to get off these these plantations and move into an urban setting and take advantage of education, take a business of the Freedmen's Bureau that's headquartered here. Mm-hmm. So Raleigh comes out of the Civil War, which is a truly grand time for African Americans who are trying to understand what this freedom is and take advantage of all what that word promises. Mm -hmm. So it's an amazing time to watch how African Americans build what would become Raleigh we see today in those early days right after the Civil War.
1: Uh, When you look at Raleigh, there's a lot of names of folks that we're on the wrong side of history um, where things are still named after them. Mm. But when you have those leaders from the African-American community that were trying to create better understanding or new understanding of what freedom could mean, um, are there places in the area that carry their names?
2: I don't think so. That, that history is, is pretty hidden. What we see are, you know, an incredible class of men basically step up who, who were once seen as property and become property owners. And they do great things. And we see the most amazing thing uh, in October of 1865 was what we called the Freedmen's Convention. It's one of the most first times across, perhaps in the United States, where these free people get together. They come to St. Paul's AME Church right downtown. yeah, And they get together and say, let us chart our political future forward. I mean, these are the brightest, the best uh, come together and... I think,
1: didn't they actually use like a delegate system to determine correct, yeah. who were going to be the representatives?
2: Heavily from the eastern part of the state, very few from the western part of the state. But yeah. it's uh, it's an amazing moment where these black men come together and take charge of their future in this becoming new citizens of this new nation that's forged after slavery. So uh, it's amazing. And so the, the St. Paul's AME are the ones that are behind the capital city Juneteenth celebration that's taking place at Dick's Park every year. So they've been managed to, to be that leadership again and to be that flagship church that is once again leading the black community in the celebration of, of emancipation. Wow. Holy cow. never knew that.
1: Are churches the reason why the records that have survived have, have survived? Or as a historian, how do you What are some ways that you look for, when you had people that were subjugated, where do you find those primary sources?
2: It's really hard. I mean, when you're ever doing African-American genealogy, that 1865 wall is pretty hard to surmount, because you know once freedom, we can look toward the 1870 census, and that's the first time where African-Americans truly have an identity. They have a last name. Mm -hmm. They have an age. You can see their families. They list them out by names. But before that, they're just a number. They're just a, a identified by race, they're identified by sex and age, and that's it, because they are considered property. So anytime we can start to to look back through those first records coming out of slavery, which are the most important, right? That's the freedom generation. That's what we really use to to, to look further back. And you know, for African Americans to get over the eighteen sixty five wall is it's gravy. It is such a rewarding experience to really get back in there and to get closer toward that ultimate goal of how close can we get you back to African roots. And so every time I do genealogy, that's sort of the main goal. Ultimately, can we get back across that middle passage in some way? And so Raleigh has a, especially with the Freedmen's Bureau, which records are really great, the census records, um, a lot of the mortality records start picking up African Americans. And then because of Shaw and St. Augustine in these churches, we see this collective Grouping of records, so Raleigh's really got a, a rich um, treasure trove of information to pull from to reconstruct the lives of these people.
0: Talk more about Shaw and St. Augustine's. How did they come about, and, and 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 how they grew into you know such strong institutions, black institutions?
2: Yeah, um, I think what we see um, it becomes pretty obvious to to Northerners that. With uh, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and freedom is coming, that there is a responsibility that they had is that not only giving them freedom but giving them the one thing that was denied to them once again was education. Yeah. So we see a number of of organizations like the American Missionary Association, the Freedmen's Bureau, they're sending so many um, people south to educate, set up schools, and to the the thought is that. Again, if these people are going to be Americans, they have to understand, they have to be educated. They have to be part of the the, the economic, political systems. So that's Henry Tupper, who comes, who was a, a Union Army chaplain, comes south with the American, Milita- uh, Meth- American Missionary Association, <laughs> and begins teaching classes. And we see so many people who come south, they want to set up churches, but they sw- quickly realize that education truly is what's needed. So... Churches and schools kind of go hand in hand all across Raleigh. There's like twenty some schools that are set up just in Raleigh to teach free free people how to read. Wow, wow!
0: And are none of those are still around though?
2: No. Well, the one um, Washington Elementary grade oh, School, okay, truly draws its genesis from one of these Freedmen's Bureau schools. So that's oh, wow. been around that long, and so it's just a remarkable of of once African Americans get this. Education in Raleigh, they do great things in it because Shaw begins cranking out um, graduates that spread across the nation and start spreading the seeds of education. So, you know, I can't, I'm just crazy about the Shaw story because they are the mother HBCU in many ways. Yeah. And so,
0: well, they had they had uh, uh, a
2: medical school. They had a medical school. They had one of the first four year medical schools in North Carolina, if not the nation. Yeah, they had a pharmacy school, a law school. So again, what are the the things that? African-American needs most coming out of slavery and that is education and health care so the real desire is right on the heels of, of, of teaching these people how to read write um, to to take care of themselves is to take care of them their bodies mm-hmm. right so that, I mean that's why the Leonard Medical School is so incredibly important it's so fascinating to see that that's what they saw the need and, and leveraged uh, support from white backers in the north to fund this school and to teach doctors that spread across the United States, and
0: then we also had you had Saint Agnes over at, over at uh, Saint uh, Augustine's. I mean the, the the bones are still there. You can go still still see the ruins there. But I mean another that was a big nursing school, wasn't yeah. it?
2: And you know uh, certainly starting um, a teaching hospital, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. teaching hospital. Yeah. yeah, that comes around eighteen ninety six, I think, pretty later. Then, you know, the, the doctors that are trained at Leonard, trained at St. Agnes, um, there's a multitude of private black hospitals that we're just starting to find vestiges of these all around the city. So, again, Raleigh African-Americans had such a great access to health care that drew was a regional draw from, from you know, all across sort of the central and eastern part of North Carolina It would come to Raleigh for you know, coming to these hospitals and then throw into that Chavis Park. It's a regional edge of, you know, there's a few places where African-Americans could go to a park a yeah. pool and to enjoy it. So Raleigh, you know, is, is fascinating to look at what African-Americans did with freedom and is truly on display uh, in, in, in here in Raleigh. And it's just an incredible story that we really don't know the full depth and breadth of.
0: Tell us about John Chavis, who Chavis Park is named after. Because this this was before this is before the war.
2: Yeah, John Chavis is is a fascinating guy who I think was from Virginia. Um, when the American Revolution comes, actually enlists to fight for the patriot cause. He attends uh, classes at Princeton, what would become uh, Lee University?
0: Washington. Washington,
2: Lee, Lee, that's it. Um, And actually drifts into North Carolina and starts a school. And the school is quite amazing because uh, during the day he's teaching white pupils. Some of the sons of the most uh, influential government um, figures in North Carolina history send their sons to Chavis to be educated and at night he teaches black students. So it's just a fascinating story. And his career is cut short um, in the eighteen after Nat Turner's rebellion in eighteen thirty one, that there's a wholesale crack down on african-americans and access to education access to voting because some freed african-american men could vote um so yeah it just totally destroys his career as as the white society really cracks down on black freedoms at this time
0: after emancipation raleigh ends up having these freedmen villages that are all around. You've got some on the western side and one some on the southeastern side. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about a little a little bit about how they grew and and some of their cultures and legacies?
2: Yeah, and that's fascinating because you know if we talk about a lot of southern towns, there's always the wrong side of the tracks, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's always divided. And at the end of the Civil War, we see that these freedman villages kind of ring the city, so there's not really at this point a raw, a, a division on that. So. You've got places like Lincolnville to the east, um, um, Hungry Neck. Um, you've got um, Oberlin Village so that you got Method and yeah Method that pops up on the west side. Yeah, and so Oberlin, you know, there's a, there's a, so much attention on Oberlin, and it's fascinating because we can we have maps where we can see the genesis of the free black homesteads that were the origins of Oberlin. And after the war, they just blossom around these few homesteads. So Mm. Oberlin's a a wonderful story. And so, yeah, we, we see these 13 villages that, that attract so many of these, these African-Americans coming off these farms, coming to take advantages of all the opportunities in the city.
0: And, and, you know, Federal street and then Wilmington street ends up being a, a big room, a, a big area for black business. Correct.
2: Yeah, so certainly we have East Target Street, which really starts to to gel as the Black Main Street, starting in the nineteen teens and twenties, mm-hmm. with Lightner's Arcade, um, so many of other black businesses, the Royal Theater down on this strip. Mm-hmm. And if you go to East Target St- uh, Street today, um, you can see murals painted on the sidewalk of these different black businesses. So they are oh, wow. seeing a resurgence in the memory of the show that you know African Americans truly played a, a a central role in the building of this city the economic development the running of it and it's everything this raleigh has done owes a great debt to those those black uh people who helped run businesses and even helped build the city
1: and is uh, would you say that Hargett was is predominantly the only black main street raleigh has had or when there's been different you know getting later to jim crow um has that did that move or restart and false stalls
2: yeah, it's interesting to watch the the changing demographics in Raleigh because, you know, we were more integrated in 1880 than we were in 1920. So when Jim Crow— Really? Yeah, when Jim Crow wow. starts taking effect, that's when we start to see the stratification of this is the black section and this is the white section. Uh-huh. Um, the craziest example is St. Ambrose Church. It's an AME church that they were forced to roll their church— away from downtown because they were pushed out and moved it down towards South Wilmington Street. Hmm. And again, they they moved it out in the 1960s, even farther out. So we do see um, a lot of... of, Looking at the demographics of Raleigh today really starts in the 1920s. We kind of see like the southeastern portion of the cities become highly African-American. But in the 1860s, I mean, the 18... Yeah, 1870s, so much... Of these black villages ring the city so it's it's kind of all over the place
0: so why were we more integrated like in the in the 1880s then is that is that just because of the because of reconstruction at that point
2: i think it is you know just the way we we can start to see some of these stratifications in, in, in black homesteads within the city kind of 1840s we start to see African Americans kind of drift to the southeastern side, and they are kind of just scattered around because, again, if you look at how slavery, these white slave owners wanted their people nearby, so they you know either had them in a house here or there, and so that legacy lasted up, and again, until white city owners are like, hey, we need to control more of this space we need to make more room for white businesses more white families mm-hmm. so we'll push them here and there and certainly raleigh doesn't have a lot of these red line if we call the red lines where you know banks would draw out where black communities would be we see more of restrictive covenants in neighborhoods like wow. oakwood saying all right we will not sell to black families and that's what starts to segregate these populations because they can't move into these new neighborhoods that are being built so that's kind of brings on that the 1920s on jim crow
0: that that the jim the jim crow separation Mm -hmm. and everything like that and it really hasn't it really has set up what raleigh is today yeah you know basically the lines you know i guess racial lines of where people live Mm -hmm. crazy
1: and then and then where did they work i mean you know, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about how many doctors and lawyers were being trained here that were African American. Um, but what were the other t- kind of trades that built that these communities could rally around?
2: Yeah, um, a lot of you know porters, barbers, service industry people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the things that really fuels. A very interesting development in these black neighborhoods are the black professionals that come to work at the universities, Mm. professors, um, you know, um, administrators. So with these two universities, we see a, a a growing black middle upper class form in Raleigh. And, you know, besides the City of Raleigh Museum, I also run the Pope House. Uh, Dr. Pope was one of the first uh, doctors to graduate from Leonard Medical School, the first to get his license by the State Board of uh, Health. Um, Moves to Charlotte, comes back to Raleigh, builds this house in sort of right on that color line on Wilmington Street. But, you know, his neighbor is uh, is the the Macaulay Hospital, private black hospital. That whole stretch leading down towards Shaw was a very prominent um, professional class of, of men. So it's just interesting to see how... Raleigh developed so much a different class structure that mirrors so much of the white community that shows up in the black community as well.
0: So how did we lose a lot of that? Um, oh, I mean, how did we? Lo- did that just happen over the over time from like the twenties until now uh, because of forced segregation because of Jim Crow? I mean, I mean, it it, it just it just sort of boggles in the mind here that we had such a, a a vibrant community um, that with obviously with 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 you know a vibrant black community
2: but a lot of that is gone now yeah um two things i would say are urban renewal Urban uh, renewal in took, the 60s took out a lot but yeah. also desegregation huh. because i think if you think about segregation it is a separation of white and black um so in these black communities you had black businesses black institution black clubs black sports teams black, uh, arts organizations, yeah. all of it. But with desegregation, it opened up the black community to go to white stores or, you know, white. So what we see is the synergy with these black communities now dissipated. So, um, African-Americans are moving to the burbs as well. They're getting out of the urban environment. So it's breaking up those neighborhoods in the fifties and sixties. And so, uh, if you look at Raleigh, Madonna, Acres, all of mm-hmm. these, these, Black suburban areas kind of break up this urban core and kind of spread out in the city. But yeah, desegregation kind of busted down some of these barriers. And African-Americans just kind of moved all over the place. So the core of these neighborhoods kind of lost, the, you know, keeping all the money in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's all leaving um, African-American children not going to these HBCUs, but now going to bigger, well-funded state institutions mm-hmm. like State or Chapel Hill or, you know, going up north. The Great Migration really took away a lot of the brain power of, of here. So. I think there's a lot of factors. And, you know, if we look at Raleigh today, that we're trying to re keep a lot of the, the, the great tradition and history of these neighborhoods. But, you know, economics, gentrification are really eating away at these neighborhoods that have been there for over a century and a half. And so it's really sad. And, you know, from us in the historic community, trying to capture these stories and people before it's all gone.
0: Yeah. What is your biggest frustration when you're trying to go dig and dig for these stories and to talk to these people? You know, what are some of the barriers that keep you from
2: from telling that story? Um, I, I don't th- I mean, I think it is what I think a lot of people in Raleigh just don't know what they don't know. Right. So yeah. I'm, I'm always surprised when we do programs at the City of Raleigh Museum about black history and people are just like, I never knew. I just don't know. And what we see in trying to tell the story of black Raleigh is that there are just not enough information that people can put their hands on. There's not enough books. There's not enough programs. People are hungry for it, especially in the wake of George Floyd, that people suddenly realized, wow, why are these black people so mad? And I can like, ah, let me show you in many <laughs> volumes and details why they're mad. Yeah. But there's just not enough education for us out there to understand to sympathize to learn about the black experience in America and so so getting back to Juneteenth that's why I think this holiday is so important because most white people had never heard of Juneteenth they had right. no idea what it's about and if you look at education in America that's so much of you know how much you guys go over uh civil war and slavery in school you know it's just can you gloss over is it, the eighth grade yeah <laughs> Eighth
0: grade and 11th grade, and it was taught, you know, I remember it was taught like a three-legged stool. The causes of the war were three-legged schools, slavery, states' rights, and economics.
2: Pretty much. Let's move on. Yeah, done. Yeah. So, I mean, really, slavery and Reconstruction is something that we've not really dealt with in the United States. We've kicked it on down the road, and the idea that state governments are really getting nervous now about teaching this history, it's— it's sh- shocking that we have not talked about it so long. And, I, and I, it's for me as a historian trying to understand what talking about history is going to do and, and why people are afraid of it. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story that um, uh, John Hope Franklin, Dr. John Hope Franklin, yeah. one of the preeminent black historians. Yeah. Um, when I was in, my first job was just uh, a director, was in Hillsborough. And the women of the Hillsborough Garden Club got John Hope Franklin to come out and talk. And they invited me along. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to go talk to John Hope Franklin. Yeah. And so as he's sitting there eating cucumber sandwiches, uh, I was on this kick at the time to try to. Talk to historians and ask them the $64 million question. And that is, how do we teach slavery? Because it is such a charged topic and brings out so much emotions in black and white. So I was like, I needed to find some some great nugget of wisdom. And so <laughs> I kind of slide up to Dr. Franklin and say, hey, Dr. Franklin, uh, hey, wh- what's the secret to talking about slavery? And he paused for a moment and he said, just tell the truth. Wow. And just tell the truth, and just that was such a. And because I I have seen some horrific stuff in the historic record about what slavery was about, and you're right, you don't have to make up anything and just tell history, and it is enough a damning combination, uh, condemnation of of American, uh, how America was built that you don't need to make it up, you just need to, to reveal the historic record.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what does Juneteenth, uh, you know, mean to Raleigh
2: nowadays? I think. The strange thing is that Raleigh never celebrated Juneteenth. So starting in 1866, Raleigh always celebrated Emancipation Day, January 1st. January 1. Right. Oh, okay. So we did an event last January of Emancipation Day. Yeah. Um, And it is, it was... Awesome, but also shocking what we found. Um, We see uh, these African-Americans, to celebrate the end of slavery, would get together, have parades, they would sing songs, they would write poems and have these speeches. Now, when I got into these speeches, I thought they were gonna be, oh, we're so crab, we're free and so excited. And they have a lot of mixed messages in them that Mm -hmm. were weird because you have to remember that These people had been tortured throughout their lives as slaves, right? So now they're getting out in the public in front of white people as a mass and celebrating their freedom. So their comments are very caged. Some of them are very accommodationist about what they say. You know, the message is there, but they still have to still working in an environment where the Ku Klux Klan is brand new and raising in hell. Yeah. So it was fascinating to try to watch the evolution of these messages from year to year to year. And especially in the wake of uh, the Wilmington Massacre, 1898, mm-hmm. those messages become very subdued because there's such a, uh, a feeling of fear. They still want to celebrate the end of slavery, but there is still a real... Fear that, that, you know, is is the main tool of keeping people subjugated is fear. So it's just fascinating to get into these speeches and hear what they were saying.
0: So what were they saying, you know, caging or or couching this, um, you know, catching this message of freedom, but also being
2: very guarded? Yeah. A lot of it was, you know, we we came from the most humble of circumstances but look at what all we've done in such a short time to catch up Uh um you know it trying just to show at a you know the one of the taglines for this generation was to be a credit to your race right Hmm. and so that was the theme we see pop up a lot that they wanted to show that you know they had the intelligence they had the drive they have the motivation to be part of this America, right? And just given a chance, they could do great things. And that's what we see resonate, that underneath trying to not push too much on changing the social structure that we see during the civil rights movement, but trying to operate within that to say, yeah, we 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 appreciate freedom, and we're gonna make the best of it. Yeah.
1: The, the way Raleigh has grown, Wake County has grown, um, Have there been more people wanting to celebrate the holiday and just, or and more willing to engage in African American history?
2: I think so, and truly, we see we saw an uptick again in George Floyd. It's just a, a wake up call that you know to for people to try to understand why did this happen? You know, with the death of this one man, why is everybody so upset? But if you open the history books and see, you know, the entire African-American experience in America is based on violence, eating up from slavery through lynchings and that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, once you look at it in a greater perspective, people start to get it. But again, it is we have not been honest about our historic education in the United States. And we've not been able to to look at that African-American experience and to sympathize with it, to empathize with it, and to learn about it because it's always been brushed under the table for these great narratives that we, we've we all grew up with and yeah. we, we know how, how America was built right and how it ran, but uh, not so much. There's another whole subsection to it. So yeah, we've seen a lot of, of especially white folks, trying to understand it. Also, we see a lot of African Americans because what we're seeing is reverse migration. Yeah, We see a, a yeah. lot of, you know, New Jersey, New York, coming out of there, coming back down south and trying to rediscover their roots, right? Because a lot of these folks left in the 1930s and 40s and their grandchildren, great-grandchildren are coming back to trying to rediscover that root. So it's a it's a great time that people are interested in it, but we just don't have enough out there for people to, to learn from and to go to. And so I think Juneteenth is a real... Um, you know, a, a flag that people can rally around and will lead us to other chapters to learn and discover. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great way to raise awareness about, A, America had slaves. <laughs> Two, let us understand that experience. And three, let us try to right the wrongs of that experience. And what can we do now to, to heal those wounds that are still very with us today?
0: It, it feels like a holiday to celebrate freedom and community. Yeah. Uh, really. A, a Really. Community. Um. And and. It, it, yeah. That just. just. What it. It just. What it feels like. You know. The, to. To come together and to celebrate that. The. The community and and the the culture that has been as you said buried for so long.
2: Yeah. Um. And I think you know because it is so new everybody's trying to figure out. How do you handle a Juneteenth, right? Because um, some of them have no idea what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> some of them are doing it horribly, and some of them are wonderfully. And so it is just really weird as we're trying to struggle to define what this holiday is. How do you celebrate? Is it historic education? Is it a party? Right. Is it an ice cream brand? Or, you know, how do you because it's so new so what we're seeing now is the evolution of a juneteenth it's a brand new holiday and it's Mm -hmm. interesting to watch how people struggle to comprehend slavery the end of it and to deal with all of these incredibly complex emotions that still are with us especially in the black community about slavery and how do you recognize it acknowledge it and heal from it so it's just fascinating to watch it evolve
0: yeah yeah
1: You got anything? It would be wonderful to always be able to be taking trolley tours or walking tours. But if somebody is wanting to engage um, with that spirit of freedom uh, this weekend, in addition to the events going on at Dix Park, uh, what are some places that you would recommend people to walk around in uh, in Raleigh and connect with that history?
2: Yeah, and and Raleigh, is we're starting to do some good stuff. We are starting to recognize our African-American history. Everything from, if you drive down Hillsborough Street, you're going to see these These obelisks, they have all these reliefs in them. Yeah. What are those? I don't know, but they are, uh, like, there's a, even in those obelisks is the story of Lunsford Lane. Lunsford Lane um, was an incredible story. He was born, um, I think, in the 1820s. He managed to hustle enough money to buy his freedom in the 1840s, went north, came back to buy his family out of freedom. Wow. He gets attacked. He gets tarred and feathered, escapes with his life, but buys his family and freedom, takes them north and writes his autobiography so he is uh, memorialized in those yeah and he's the
1: you used to think when you're little and hearing about you know black slaves they were able to buy their freedom or earn their freedom that that was it and that was their happy ending and he really makes you understand that how much more work was involved after that? Because there were yeah. even laws which I, you know, I had no idea. Like, all right, well, you're a freed black man, but you were living up north, so you may only engage in commerce in the south for I think was it three months? Well, oh yeah, he had
2: to oh, leave God. leave the state within 20 days after emancipation, just to because yeah, yeah it was still dangerous. Um, the Joel Lane House is put together a plaque of all the enslaved people that Joel Lane owned. Um, Dick's Park is working on a huge um, descendant project. They're trying to bring back and identify um, descendants of those people who were enslaved on the Hunter Plantation, which is where Dick's Park is now. Mm. Um, The Pope House is a great way to get an introduction to, to black history in Raleigh. Um, But I think in the wider triangle, um, Stagville Plantation in in North Durham is doing a great job to, to take the focus from the big house where the white family lived to the incredible story of the enslaved people and those structures. And they're doing a great job with their descendants as well. So I think in the triangle, we are starting to move that needle and to, to kind of come to grips with it. So Raleigh, we're trying to do our part in it, which, which is kind of nice to see that Raleigh's taking the lead as a part to some of its, its neighbors around.
1: So if we want to create hope for the future, what are some, some lessons to history that we, could, we can look for?
2: Um, I think this, this is a, a pivotal moment for us. and one of the things I think is through us in the city of Raleigh Museum and through Dick's Park, Oral histories—that's what we need to collect now because we are starting to see people. People are still around whose grandparents were slaves, which is amazing. Wow! So yeah. to get those stories, and even the stories of Jim Crow, um, the Great Migration. There's there's a real need to capture these stories because they're so African Americans have been a lot vacant a lot of the times in the historic record, mm-hmm. so that history is all in their memories and in their family histories. So I would think that we would probably need to to start thinking about how do we collect these stories, how do we preserve these stories, and you know, um, there is some stuff getting off the ground, but it's moving really slow. So. I would like to see us really pick up the pace on that and to, to catalog and protect as Raleigh's black neighborhoods are starting to even more erode than we saw in the, the 60s and 70s. Hmm.
0: Fascinating. You got anything else,
2: bud? Nope. <laughs> me neither. Well, thank you guys for having no, me. It's been a lot for, of fun. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Ernie. Get Appreciate you. Man. And uh,
1: go, go see Ernie at the uh, City of Raleigh At the Museum. City of <laughs> yeah. Raleigh Museum. And the Pope House.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, friends, if you like Lawn Darts Radio, you can help keep us going by donating to Little Raleigh Radio. Your contribution will help us train community producers to share the unique voice of the City of Oaks. Go to LittleRaleighRadio.org to donate, and thanks.